Hello and welcome back to the first episode of Money Talks for 2023. Uh, my name is Oliver Smith, Managing Editor and Head of Content at AltFi. Thank you so much for joining us today and I hope you're all having a fantastic start to this new year. Now here at AltFi, uh, at Money Talks, we have some big plans for 2023, including 12 new episodes of Money Talks, one every month where we'll be digging into some of the biggest topics in fintech, along with some of the biggest names. Next month, we'll be asking how fintechs are adapting to the cost of living crisis, with Julia McCall from Chetwood Financial and Chanel Pattinson, the co-founder of Money Means and a chartered financial planner. Then in March, we'll be back to explore whether fintech for good is a fantasy or the future of finance. And we'll have Louise Hill from Go, Go Henry, uh, Nina Mahanti from Bloom Money, and Josh Gregory from Sugi all joining us. Uh, now, all those episodes are up right now on Bright Talk. You can pre register with the link below uh, in the attachments section. Or if you subscribe to Money Talks as a podcast, they'll be delivered straight to your smartphone every month. And if you're enjoying Money Talks this year and you want to see <clears throat> excuse me, some of these kinds of discussions happening in real life. Um, I have some good news because registration is open for Altfi's Festival of Finance in April. The festival is our annual event in London, uh, where we have dozens of the biggest names in our industry spread across two days of panels, keynotes, fireside discussions, plus we have ample networking time, great food, lots of coffee, uh, and a day two after party. Tickets are totally free. Uh, in fact, you can find a link in those attachments below or in your podcast show notes to, to register. And we'll be announcing some more details about the agenda very shortly. Now, housekeeping over. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by two expert investors for this first episode back. And they're going to help us make some predictions as we try to forecast fintech's big trends for 2023. So let me bring them both on screen and introduce them now. Firstly, Vinoth Jayakumar, who's a partner at Molten Ventures. Hello, Vinoth. Welcome back to the show. Um, it feels like a lifetime ago, but how was your Christmas break this year? Oli, thanks so much. Excellent to be here. Uh, I had a pretty hectic Christmas break. I got married. So it was a <laughs> few weeks of uh, Indian wedding planning and a, and a lot of logistics and a lot of good food and a and a few parties. Oh, <laughs> I just got back huge, to the UK, actually. Congratulations. Huge congratulations. Um, oh, that's great news. Um, what a good Christmas. Um, let, me, let me also introduce a slight change to the lineup. Not uh, Ellen Logan from Augmentum VC, but her colleague and fellow investor, uh, Reggie de Wasigi. Um, welcome, Reggie. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Um, how was your Christmas? I mean, I feel like <laughs> you may not be able to... to to beat Vinoth on that, but but did you have good break? No, probably. Well, uh, Oli, thank you, thank you for for having me, and thank you for having us. Um, I think my Christmas break was probably on a slightly different note. Uh, I'm still adapting to the life of a, of a, of a new new father. Uh, I have a four four months old son, so first Christmas for him. So a lot of discoveries, lights, etc., with him, uh, which was which was always fun. Uh, not a lot of sleep, but I think we're we're doing okay. Oh, I guess fantastic. I guess Venus is also a bit sleep deprived like me uh, from his wedding, so that's that's all right. That puts us on the same spot. <laughs> <laughs> um, great stuff. Now, now, just for our audience, uh, you know, we always love to hear your questions. So, if you're listening live and you have any questions for Vinoth or Reggie, feel free to file them below, and we'll we'll tackle them at the end. Um, now, let's get started. Firstly, 
fintech is a is a very broadly defined sector. It covers everything from payments through to buy now pay later. Um, but I wanted to start by asking each of you which subsector of fintech are you most excited about for 2023? Um, Reggie, I'll, I'll start with yourself. Which subsector are you most excited about? Yeah, Oli, I think um, so 2023, I think, is, is really shaping up to be an interesting but also an exciting year uh, for fintech. I think the sector has reached um, a level of maturity and depth um, that will allow it to be resilient uh, in the face of shifting macro trends that we're currently experiencing. Um, but I also believe that we are far from having reached the peak of, of fintech investment and successes, um, especially when looking at the scale of the opportunity ahead. So fintech has less than 5% revenue penetration uh, versus incumbents across verticals. So we're only scratching the surface here. Um, of course, when we're thinking and trying to predict the subsectors for, for 2023 that will be kind of hot, um, some capital will flow to new themes, uh, the new kid on the block being like applied AI. Uh, but I think fintech would also be resilient as a sector in more traditional uh, sectors of financial services. Um, three on which I'm particularly excited um, would be one payment, uh, two assets slash wealth management, and three uh, insurance. Um, payments, of course, the sector in VC that has attracted the most funding uh, over the years. Um, but recession will serve, I believe, as a catalyst uh, to make B2B payments more efficient. Um, on the asset and wealth management side, uh, particularly excited about the fact that, well, asset management, asset managers have invested heavily in digital solutions with the aim of cutting costs. Um, but this operational efficiency gains didn't really materialize. So in this environment of pressure on costs, uh, I think we are facing a real catalyst for change. And then on, on insurance, uh, we're particularly excited about the cyber insurance space at, at Augmentum. Uh, we've been historically pretty bearish on B2C insurance with uh, difficult unit economics, uh, reinventing distribution, which is, we believe, not the, the biggest challenge in insurance. Um, but we are excited about kind of new frontier risk, um, especially on, on cyber, where we are seeing some secular trends of digitalization for businesses. Data can provide a huge advantage in pricing and portfolio management. Uh, some capacity crunch from incumbents as well, uh, because they've suffered huge losses. So yeah, overall, uh, pretty excited about that, that sector as well. Awesome, awesome. Okay, payments, asset management, and insurance, especially on the cyber side. Correct. Vinoth, uh, let's add yours into the mix. What 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 subsectors of fintech are you most excited about for this year? Oli, you, you and I have had a conversation about this topic, uh, I would say, over the last three, four years. And you know what's funny? I might sound like a broken tape recorder, but the bit that we're going to double down on and have doubled down on over the last 24, 36 months is infrastructure software. Uh, mm -hmm. And that would broadly encompass... Uh, Banking, it would also encompass insurance, right? So we're looking at what would displace the Guidewire Duck Creeks. We would looking at what would displace the Jack Henrys and the FISs of this world. Now, I would say I'd say one thing, which is the the you know we've been we've been cautious as to how we think about value capture, right? So a lot of what we do with entrepreneurs is value creation, and the, the that only results in value accretion inside of a company if you can capture the value. Now. A lot of what we have learned is that in, in the crises of 2000, 2008, and you can argue now, the one thing that we have seen is that the banks are increasing their spend. Uh, and partly that is a reason, th there's a reason behind that. One is that there's a driver towards profitability. 
And profitability needs to be serviced by the right tech stack to enable that to happen, right? Typically, banks have a very heavy onboarding cost. And so what they are trying to do is to work out what that mix of cost looks like and how that's going to evolve over the next 6, 12, 18 months. Typically, they also have a very long buying cycle. So they're looking at sort of ideas around total cost of ownership. And so what we're seeing is that banks are increasing their spend, number one. But number two, the overall spend is what I think in, in 2022, it clocked over $580 billion in IT spend across all banks. Now, that's a significant tap. So again, to Reggie's point earlier, we're only scraping at the surface. I don't know what the exact penetration is, but it remains the same thing that we're excited about. We've read some, uh, we've been talking to some of the CIOs of the banks. Uh, and what's interesting is that they're looking to increase their spend by three to 4% this year alone in the, mid, in the depths of the crisis. Mm. So it's telling for where the market's going to go on that front. Super interesting. And especially as we're hearing about the internal job cuts that are being made, um, I, I guess that adds weight to, to, to what you're saying. They're shifting that spend. Um, okay, interesting. That's, that's a great start. We've got a good foundation to build on there. Um, we're only a few weeks into the year, but I, but I think as we've identified, there are already these trends that are starting to crop up. Whether, um, Reggie, you mentioned AI, you know, ChatGPT has been in the news an incredible amount. Um, the job cuts, you know, impacting not just fintech, but the wider tech sector in the last few days alone. Um, but I wanted to ask what, what fintech trend or theme do you think will come to define 2023? Is there something that you think is going to cut across the year? Um, Reggie, I'll, I'll start with you here. Um, I think I think it's 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 a great question, um, and I believe well, when it comes to define the fintech trend of 2023, um, I think it's all about um, getting how, how does um, sorry how let me uh, just uh, refocus for a second. Um, I think one of the main sector where I've heard kind of industry participants really focus on um, is on financial planning and analysis, uh, mm -hmm. especially in today's economic climate. Um, so we have seen some great in initiatives and some great kind of pre-seed seed um, ideas being funded for the CFO stack. I think this category will still remain a very hot topic. However, I think it still um, remains to be seen if that category can really establish a foothold uh, in the market. Um, there's no real clear winner yet. Um, and two main questions will remain are, are these products real must-haves? And in terms of competitive landscape, can, can each of these kind of sub-markets support more than one or two players at Series B? Or is there only kind of one category leader at scale that, that can come out of it? Um, I think that's, that's where I would, uh, that's my two cents here. Okay, interesting, interesting. And, and, and Vinoth, yourself, what, what theme or trend do you think will come to, to define 2023. If I was going to simplify, uh, it was it's going to be embedded finance, uh, and embedded finance applied in a way in which it unlocks non-bank financial institutions tapping into financial services overall. So that could be corporate lending, it could be payments, B2B payments from a non-bank institution, it could be telcos offering savings products. What it does is it, it starts to eat at this idea of value capture. Uh, what I'm what I'm curiously leaned into is this is this thing about sort of being in the flow of funds, right? The idea of being right at the start of when the transaction is originated through all the way to when it's settled, and you know when you capture that flow, when you touch the money, so to speak, it either costs money or you make money doing it. So it depends on who you are in that equation. If you're the provider of the service, say you are, I don't know, O2, and you're going to launch. I'm making this up. I don't know if they're even doing it, but maybe they should. 
uh, you're going to launch uh, a neobank, right? Which is focused on trying to convert your existing users who are interacting with you every day, consciously or subconsciously, into becoming someone who would do much more than just telco with you. It could be savings, it could be payments, it could be money transfer, it could be cross-border because they're, you know, O2 is European at least, could do between UK and Spain and so on. When you think about all of those things, what it does is there needs to be an infrastructure software layer that unlocks it. And that would be embedded finance. But there are a few players that specialize in it. You know, we've seen there's some news around Rails Bank and sort of what they're building. Uh, Modular is doing really well in Europe. Uh, we happen to be investors in a company called FinTech OS. Uh, there's Phoenix in the US, which is backed by Bain. In fact, you, uh, I, I came across an article that uh, I, I had written up on the latest research from Bain. Uh, Matt over there is probably the king of, of, of embedded finance, right? Their prediction is that the market's going to be about $7 trillion in 2026. Now, that is a massive number. Uh, and I don't know what the software piece of that is. I think it's roughly about 50, 52 billion. Now, I'm, th I'm thinking about that from the perspective of which entrepreneurs are looking at capitalizing on that and how they're going to go after it. Is it the payments piece first? Is it the infrastructure piece first? Is it go to market? Is it customer journeys on top? Those are all the critical pieces that come built to build into a into a software company. Very interesting. Very interesting. Um, yeah, I, I'm with you on the embedded finance topic. Um, we've actually got a report on AltFi coming out at the end of March, and we're we're going to be digging into each sort of embedded sector from payments to insurance to buy now, pay later. And and it's interesting. Some of them are very developed and, and advanced and others are, are really not. And they have a long way to go. Uh, but that growth, it, there's a huge potential there. Um, OK, interesting. OK, we've set down some some trends and themes. Now I want to I want to kind of bring you guys over to some core core themes um, that we've we've certainly seen last year and whether we'll keep seeing them this year. Profitability being the first one. Um, it's become quite a competitive buzzword, really. Um, it feels like at the moment, every every fintech wants to declare profitability, even if that's only for a, for a single month. Um, I think Starling Bank and Oak North are the, I, I believe, remain the only two modern fintechs that have reached annual profitability. Um, I'm at, correct me in the comments if I'm wrong. Um, do you predict that profitability is now the firmly set direction for, for European fintech? Um, Reggie, what, what do you think? Well, that's, it's, it's certain, uh, Ali, that profitability has become quite a buzzword. Uh, we see that in every single report that's, that's coming out uh, because well, especially equity markets are challenging at the moment. Um, and uh, as an investor or as an entrepreneur, uh, relying on the fact solely that the company will be able to raise in the future if they demonstrate kind of growth at all costs is not is not the norm anymore. Um, raising is, is, is really tough in, in this environment. Um, I think structural profitability was probably kind of hot before the markets will, went a little bit nuts uh, in, in more recent years. Uh, but it's, it's good to see investors and founders back to basics on, on kind of stage-related market traction, brand sizes, fundamentals of, of businesses, um, with, with an overall more focus on, yeah, on fundamentals. Um, if I can probably provide a more, more nuanced view, I think strong companies that still need to go through kind of loss-making periods will still get funded. But the point being structural profitability. So does the business model of a company make sense? Um, so I'm, I'm I'm probably also preaching for for my own chapel, but in a and for Venice's chapel as well. In in is in, in this harder uh, environment, um, it's probably good to have an investor, long term thinking, uh, but with some deep fintech expertise uh, to to support you as a founder um, in in this in this tough market. 
Mm, interesting. Okay, so you're you're sort of willing to overlook a little bit of short-term pain as long as you can identify that that structural profitability that will be achieved Correct. in a horizon which is is sort of uh, you know you're able to swallow. Um, Vinoth, do you broadly agree with with Reggie's comments? Any any anything to add there? Pretty much. I mean, the the one thing that's important to note, right? You mentioned Oak North and Starling and so on. I mean, just look at the incumbent retail values. Right. I mean, you are, we're now in a rate environment where they're going to be more profitable than they, than they have been in the last 13 years, just by virtue of doing nothing. Right. And the second part of that is if you look at some of the, if you study some of the, the, the rates of return on some of these banks, the return on equity has been lower than the cost of equity in the last couple of years. And what that, it says, it says a few things, right? It means that the banks are struggling to deliver products profitably. Right. And over a, a sustained period of time. And they're also struggling to sort of manage what their cost of capital is like in this environment of trying to trade off between equity and debt. And when I look at technology in general, uh, you know, there are lots of lots of banks that are sort of thinking about where this spend layer is going to come from. How is it going to evolve? Where is it going to take us? And I think, you know, to, to, to sort of double down a little bit on what Reggie had said, we are seeing the conversation about profitability at every deal or every entrepreneur we meet. But I will say this, right? I think everything is a trade-off on, on return on investment. So it's always between growth and profitability. And it depends on the stage you're at. Now, I think every company needs to have a view about how it becomes profitable. Yeah. But you know, I'll just point this out, and this is public information. When we first became investors in Revolut, it was not only loss-making, but it was gross margin negative, right? And so to think about what that evolution needs to be, is not that straightforward, but you have to be able to achieve a certain vision to be able to capture a market that's big enough inside of a product proposition that does become profitable, right? So this measure of, is it annually profitable? Is it cash flow positive? All of those are sort of monikers for, is this a sustainable business model? Can you build this into something that owns the category? And so when we make investments today, we think very deeply about what does category ownership look like? And that does not equal profitability early. Right. If it does, fine, because you might be in a category where your sales cycles are long and you win a big contract and your cost base is low and you might become profitable. But that's not the driver of how we build it. It's about can you own the category? Then you capture the economics. Interesting. Interesting. OK, uh, I, I actually didn't know that about Revolut. So it's, it's really interesting to hear that. Um, OK, so we've, we've tackled profitability. I want to I want to shift on something that we saw happen last year. And the story has changed a little bit more recently. The U.S. neobanking story last year saw, saw JP Morgan having some, some great success with Chase launching in the U.K., reaching over a million customers, 10 billion in deposits. While on the other hand, we've seen Goldman Sachs with its Marcus play. They're cutting thousands of jobs. They seem to be retreating from that as a, as a neobank in the U.S. and in the U.K., but as a less sort of fleshed out proposition. Um, a lot of people were very skeptical about Chase. Chase, I would say, has done a, has done a good job um, establishing itself. Obviously, there's been a lot of spend there. Um, Marcus, which had the early play in the market, is now is now pulling back. What do you what do you each predict is in store for 2023 when we look at these these US neobanks that are coming into the UK and the European market? Um, Reggie, I'll, I'll start with you. What what do you think is in store for this year? Um, I'll, I'll probably. Um give a comment on the, the new banking space uh, first um i think it's it's going to be it's going to be definitely a, a challenging year ahead uh with vc 
funding drying up. Um, and I think for, for neobanks that aren't at scale yet uh, or who haven't worked out what unit economies at scale can be, or also to build up on what Venus was saying on kind of built a category ownership if your category is or your market segment is, is too small, um, then I think it's going to be a very, very tough year uh, ahead for, for, for that segment. Mm, mm. Uh, and Vinoth, I guess, is is the US neobanks coming in going to increase the pressure and make that even more challenging? Um, what, what what are your predictions when it comes to those big US players? I sort of create a, a, a separation in my mind between what neobanks are and what greenfields coming from the banks are, because the, the, the Chase product and the Marcus product, they are greenfields from existing large incumbents. Uh, I, I mean, they, they, ha they have fundamentally different technology stacks. But do I see more of that coming into, into Europe? I don't know. But the main thing that some European companies have been worried about is whether or not the big US full stack neobanks would come here like Chime and Varro and so on. That has never happened. And I think the market in the US, in the US and in Northern America is big enough that it does not make sense for Europe to feature on the roadmap anytime soon. Mm -hmm. Now you can argue the complete opposite for Revolut whose thesis is global every day, all, all day, right? That's, and that's a fundamentally different thesis. Um, I think coming back to this point about uh, Goldman's, Marcus, and, and Chase, Chase has had a fundamentally different product strategy. If you look at what it's trying to build, right, it acquired Nutmeg, it, it's looking at sort of a full stack product, and it wants to almost be the best place to do anything you need to do in banking. And by doing it with the technology stack it's got, it's able to probably, I don't know the numbers, but probably do it profitably. Marcus, on the other hand, has actually got a very different product in the US than it does in Europe. I don't know if the reason is regulatory or not, but in the US, it's a broader product. It's not as broad as what Chase does, but fundamentally, I think it was a product strategy conversation that was different to how they did Europe versus US. And that's why I don't think they will really, really be able to eat, you know, Revolut or Starling's lunch, as it were. So I don't really see the threat per se. Interesting. Okay. Okay. Um, sort of different, different views there. Um, I want to ask you guys now, this is less of a prediction because obviously you, you guys are both investors in this space, but I, I, want to, I want you to tell our audience what you're thinking when it comes to the funding landscape this year. Um, you know, what, I guess when you're investing in companies, what are you thinking about when it comes to their next raise and how successful or challenging that will be? Um, Vinoth, I'll stay with you here. What, what do you think the funding landscape for fintechs will look like this year? I mean, the, I think the obvious thing is that there is a quote unquote, a flight to, to quality. And, and as a result of that, this, you know, there's, there's a lot of dry powder in the market, but it's looking for very limited things. So it means that every company that can prove a path to category ownership and category leadership will have a shot at raising money. Now, will the price of that money be the same as 2022 or 2021 or 2020? Unlikely. Because uh, we have reset to a new normal, as it were. So I think the, the the interesting bit is that lesser deals will get done. It may likely still be big deals, but they will definitely be in the category winners. Uh, and I think the valuations for the best companies will remain relatively high, but not as high as they were in, in 2021. Right. Mm -hmm. so, so it's value accretion in the category winner. That's what investors will look for. I mean, Reggie's doing the same as I am. So we're all doing the same thing, really. And, and just to stay with you on this, I guess when it comes to later in the development, Revolut, you know, we've mentioned a few times, yeah. when it comes to questions around public markets and questions around M&A, do you expect public markets will recover to the point at which 
you know, portfolio companies start to consider IPO? Um, or do you expect we'll see more exits via M&A? I, it's, it's, this is really hard to say because the, the rate and inflation environment determines a lot of what the public market's appetite is, number one. Number two, even when there is appetite, it doesn't necessarily have to skew towards tech. There are non-tech IPOs happening mm. all the time, right? So, I mean, we, we happen to be um, investors in a company called Primary Bid, uh, which is very close to how public markets are, are, are sort of evolved. Now, you know, there we're kind of getting a, a, a finger on the pulse of sort of what is the appetite, right? Where is the capital going to come from? And what is the ask in today's market? I think it will, the, the current medium term view, i.e. this year, is that it will look a little bit like 2022. There'll be spokes of growth and there'll be lots of flat and there'll be lots of nothing. That's kind of what it looks like today. But again, this predicting the future thing is just impossible to do. So we're just going with exactly where we are. Are we in the right companies? Are they well capitalized? What does the next round look like? Your second part of the question about will there be more M&A? Um, I don't know about M&A from an exit perspective, but I think there'll be a lot more consolidation because mm -hmm. you've had a series of companies that have raised at high valuations in 2021 and 2020, which would have had capital to take them into 2023 and possibly 2024. But now is a time when they either have lived up to the valuation or they need to think about down rounds or they need to think about a way to consolidate value with another company. They may join up with the number two or the number three in the market and then build something. So I think there'll be a lot more consolidation through that rather than exits per se, if you see what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Um, Reggie, what's your view, I guess, on that funding landscape piece, but also on the public markets and then the M&A? What are your thoughts across those? I guess um, the way we think about it is that public markets, um, is, like the, sh the short term view on public markets is that the IPO market is pretty shut for the next six six to eight months. Uh, at least we work with that hypothesis in our mind. Will it open up? Maybe, but we 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 remain cautious on on what the what the outlook looks like. Um, I think we are going to see a lot of M and A consolidation. Um, piggybacking to what Vino said, I think we share the same view there. Um, if I cannot probably one nuance is what, what I expect is that cash is really king in this market. Um, and so that M&A will be probably funded by kind of different structure, uh, but not per se debt, uh, not per se cash, um, sorry. So that, well, you, you could protect your cash and you do M&A with your equity, existing on your investors' money coming in, uh, with debt, you name it, but really to protect your own balance sheet as a, as a company. Um, mm. So kind of uh, more alternative ways of funding your M&A. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, 12 months ago, when we when we predicted our, our sort of trends for 2022, um, by this point in the conversation, I think crypto had been mentioned several times. Um, it's, it's sort of noticeably absent this year. Um, I think that that speaks to the kind of battering that crypto had in 2022 with scandals, prices continuing to crash. I'd love to hear from both of you what your your views are on on crypto and whether whether its reputation has been tarnished or or if you still remain in any way optimistic about its potential and its future. Um, Vinoff, I'll, I'll send it to you first of all. You know, by virtue of being a a, a Draper or a DFJ fund for a long time, uh, we have been long on the sector. Um, now, I think there's a fundamental difference between crypto and blockchain. And I think it's hard for us to make predictions about where crypto is going to go per se. 
but we are seeing lots of activity in tokens. Uh, and at the same time, we're thinking about sort of what the second or the third bounce of the ball is in that space. So we're investing in the blockchain infrastructure space. We just made an investment in a company called Settlement based in Belgium. Uh, and so I, we remain positive on the infra side of things. Mm -hmm. uh, on the transactional flow piece, whether it's acting like a store of value or a currency, honestly, I, we don't know. Interesting. So, so bullish on it as a sort of infrastructure technology, maybe more bearish on the, the Bitcoin token sort of play there. Um, Reggie, what's your feeling on this? I think um, Oli, it's it, it's sure that um, 2022 was a was a end of 2020. The end of 2022, sorry, was a yeah was a difficult uh, moment for crypto. We are in a crypto winter, and we probably have lost about a year of kind of broad broad adoption. Um, I think it's it's true that one might say this, the space still needs to demonstrate real life use cases uh, beyond pure speculative crypto trading. Uh, we have seen some. Um, but, but not much. I think like like Venus and, and, and the Molten team, we do remain relatively optimistic on blockchain infrastructure. I think where I've seen uh, interesting develop is in spaces where there was no infrastructure before and where there's still an entire infrastructure to be built. Uh, for example, credit investment in emerging market, which is completely a manual slash paper-based uh, process where you can use blockchain infrastructure actually rethink um, the financial institutions infrastructure itself. Um, will blockchain um, disrupt equity trading? I, I, I doubt it, but again, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a, the, the real, real deep expert in here, uh, but I think it has the potential to disrupt some part of financial services for sure. Mm, mm, interesting. Okay, I'm going, to ask, I'm going to ask each of you this question. I asked it last year as well. Um, Bitcoin, what, what will the price of Bitcoin be at the end of the year in December? Um, Reggie, do, do you have a prediction here? What What are you expecting? Uh, Oliver, that, that's a that's a tough question for uh, for the evening and morning. Um, but I guess <laughs> I guess um, I, I don't have a, a, a very smart answer to that. Reggie, would be a wild guess. <laughs> no, I think. Look, if 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 I could share my screen and show you what I would be doing right now is like look at and ask ChatGPT what what the prediction would be. <laughs> then the answer the answer would be uh, look, Reggie, um, I can't predict the future. So my first answer will be what like uh, okay, I can't predict the future. But if I want to say something that sounds a little bit smart, then I would say I think the price will be depending on two factors. One is kind of response to a black swan event a la FTX um, or a massive adoption in certain countries. So I think that can have an influence. Uh, the second thing that, that I would say as well is what, what is today the big driver of volume and price on crypto is institutional money coming in or out. Um, and when, you, when we talk to institutional investors and how they think about the space, um, well, they, they think about it with a kind of portfolio allocation strategy. Um, and they, in a high interest rate environment, they look at, okay, I have some high interest here or I have crypto, uh, high risk, high reward potential. Um, where do I allocate my money? So uh, I think in a high interest rate environment, if we're still facing it, but I'm not an expert economist, um, I think crypto prices will probably be, be down. Um, if I have to give a wild guess, I think we're probably staying flat at, yeah, twenty thousand dollars end of the year. Okay, we got a number. We got a number. Got um, a number. Not, don't worry, I'm not going to hold you to it at the end of the year. Um, Vinoth, what what are your what are your thoughts? I think that uh, to Reggie's point about the institutional demand, it will determine 
how the prices move. Uh, there are also major events on when the splits happen, especially we're talking about Bitcoin. Uh, and don't forget, right, that Bitcoin is not the only cryptocurrency out there. So there is a conversation about where a particular currency can accrete value. Yeah. And things pop up from time to time. There are crazy things like Dogecoin that suddenly pops up from time to time. So I just leaned in to understand where the flows are going to go and what's going to unlock it. Right. So now if you ask me specifically for a prediction, I said earlier, I would not give you one. But actually, I would go on to say that I think if, you, if I had to just make a wild guess, mm. it would be flat. Just looking at the flows of uh, where the activity is on the blockchain side of things, how many projects are taking place at the moment, what it's going to look like over the next six, nine months. feel like there's going to be a fluctuation up and down, but we're probably going to end up where we are today at the end of the year. I hope you don't hold us accountable, uh, Oliver. <laughs> don't worry. Don't worry. <laughs> I won't. I won't. Um, I'm going to go and ask ChatGPT and um, maybe I'll base my investment strategy around what it what it tells me to do. Um, okay. Okay. Let's move away from crypto. Um, uh, but but similarly, buy now, pay later. Um, again, you know, this time last year, a lot of optimism. Um, you know, valuations um, were, were all heading through the roof, and and then we saw that early part of 2022 where where things started to change, um, and 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 demand changed as well. Um, do you, uh, Vinoff, I'll start with you. Do you expect buy now, pay later? Uh, I guess to remain on the rocks this year. Or is there a, a turnaround on the cards, potentially? I think the, the buy now, pay later question has two sides to it. One is that it is a, a payment option and a user experience UI UX product. And on the other side, which is a big part of it, it is a lending product. It's a balance sheet play. It's a book build play. It's an underwriting play. It's a cost of debt versus default rate play, right? Now, those two things do different things. One is a conversion player. The other is making a margin on the book. So those things, they, they don't move at the same speed at the same time. If the rates go up, the cost of debt's gone up. But the conversion equation has never changed. They need People need conversion to increase from time. It doesn't matter what kind of website you are, whether it's Lululemon or it could be Pret, right, to do buy now, pay later. So I, I'm, I'm thinking about this from the perspective of where's the market going to go, right? If you look at the data, 70% of GDP is consumer spending. So what affects consumer spending? The price of money, inflation and rates. And I think at this point in time, we're gonna see that waver a little bit, which means that it'll hit the conversion piece and as a result, the size of the books and the quality of the books, because it's unsecured debt. So I think where it's gonna go, it's, it's gonna probably gonna bottom out a bit more. And then it's gonna go back to the, is this a book build play? Is this a conversion play? What do we really care about? Interesting. Okay, so some, I guess some some stable thinking, some sort of like rationalization will happen, um, and after which you know maybe there's room for for growth in the future. Um, I like that you're trying to summarize every point. You make. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to help, um, Reggie. What, what's your thought? Um, I, I guess uh, specifically for binopulator, we can probably draw a small parallel between binopulator and crypto here. I think we, we are seeing the fallouts. Um, of certain emerging categories. And I think it's it's typical for when people are building things in, and trying to build new category. Um, it's building ahead of, of regulation, which which carries risk, but can also pay off. Um, secondly, I think fundamentally, we're we're seeing that alternative payment methods are becoming popular with a lot of with a lot of adoption. Um, so which indicates that consumers are willing to try out new payment methods. 
Um, so I think it's, it's, it's here to stay, but we're also going to be facing regulation heavily. Um, I, I think I, I read earlier this, this week uh, that you guys put on the spotlight the fact that um, um, uh, Zilch and Klarna would share data with credit bureaus. Um, I, I guess uh, consumers have a low understanding of the financial impact of PNPL. And so if they have a low understanding of a product that's widely adopted, that's where when the regulator is going to step in. Um, so I think, yeah, we, we will see the regulators uh, yeah, step up. Yeah, yeah, long awaited, um, you know, regulation. I think I think um, there won't be any surprises in it, but I think there will be, um, you know, further pressure on the sector, especially when it comes to that sort of, you know, the affordability assessments that are being done and, and that data being shared. Mm -hmm. um, okay, we're down to our last 10 minutes. There's some audience questions. I'm going to do my last two questions for you guys, and then we'll, we'll flip to the audience. Um, now, these are really hard ones. Um, so I did ask you both to have a little think ahead of time because I'm going to, they're very, very specific. And, and the first question, Reggie, I'll come to you on this, is which non-portfolio fintech are you most excited for uh, in 2023? Um, I guess it's it's a company that I've always very respected a lot. It's more on the later stage side versus where, where we uh, focus at, at the momentum. Um, I would mention WageStream, um, the super app for frontline workers. I think it's the type of company that is, I mean, they, they're responding very favorably to unfavorable, unfavorable uh, macro conditions, uh, ESG, post-COVID, tense workforce, dynamics, inflation, etc. Um, and I think they're truly building the European category leader. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, big fan of what, what they're doing over there. Um, Vinoth, which, which non-portfolio fintech are you most excited about? My, uh, my, my excitement would be about a company called Kodak, uh, which builds the infrastructure data layer for SMEs, starting with accounting data. Um, it, it remains one of the most important things that in this market, people are looking for value. And in technology, value is going to come from data and the proliferation of that data. So Kodak does that for the vast majority of corporates in, in, or, or their clients in, in, in Europe through that mechanic. And it basically unlocks this value creation path. And I think it's at the right time, at the right place. Um, and I think they will see a fantastic year ahead. I'm sorry not to be invested in the company. <laughs> I, I was going to say, it sounds right up your street. <laughs> you should drop them an email. Um, um, okay. And, and lastly, um, you know, we, we've kept most of this conversation, I guess, within, within the guardrails of, of logic and what we expect to happen this year. But often people also have, you know, contrarian, outlandish ideas of, of what could happen. Um, Reggie, I'd love to ask, do you have a, a, a contrarian or an outlandish fintech prediction for 2023 that you'd would, like to I, share with our with our private audience? I would love Vinus to take that one at first. But, uh... <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, so, please. So, so mine's going to be, uh, I think that the vast majority of the investors are, doubling down on B2B fintech, and they have over the last two years or three years. Uh, I think that in this current market, there may be an opportunity for a B2C play to rise. It could be climate backed. It could be credit backed. I don't know what it would be, but there may be a, a, a potential time to create a quote unquote, a revolute equivalent with a different thesis. Interesting. Okay. That, it's amazing that a B2C fintech play is, is contrarian, but it, but it is, um, it is at the moment. Um, Reggie, what, what what are you thinking? Um, I, I guess we're, yeah, my, my kind of contrarian <clears throat> prediction is um, I'm actually very bullish on later stage opportunities. 
Um, I think we're seeing in Europe the result today of several years of investment in fintech, and not only in London, but also in, in the rest of Europe. Um, we're seeing several very good businesses at growth stage across the continent. And so my, my view is that there are yeah, multiple strong investment cases um, here where, where U.S. investors have basically retracted from, from Europe. Um, and if a company is growing well uh, with a clear path to profitability, well, I, I would not be afraid to invest in them in, in this market. Mm. Interesting. Okay. Um, now we have had some questions from the audience. I'm, I'm really happy to hear. And the first one I'm going to, I'm going to bring to Vinoth. Uh, it is related to super apps. And I think, I think with his experience at Revolut, he, he's best placed to answer this. Um, someone in the audience has asked, why do investors still believe that a super app will prevail in developed markets like the UK and US when even the likes of PayPal have had to recalibrate their you know, um, aspirations. Why, as an investor, why do you th still think a, a super app will will prevail? I actually, Reggie and I were, were chatting about this uh, yesterday. Uh, I, I think there's a few things that underlie this 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 uh, label of a super app, right? I, I think it's actually a label. Uh, what it really points to is something that I'm reminded of, which was the original Amazon thesis when they came up with Amazon Prime which is there are some truisms that are very difficult to disprove. Faster, better, cheaper. In each one, in every equation where there's a transaction, will there be ever a time where either one of those three things are not true? It's very difficult to find an instance where it's not true. One of those, you always want things faster, you want things better, you want things cheaper, right? Now, I take Revolut as a case in point, right? So at the, at the point in time when we invested, this is now quite a few years ago, uh, the fundamental driver of the philosophy was move fast, break things, and build products at a, at a level that it makes it a no-brainer for you to engage with it. They started with the FX thing, right? But every time they launched a product, say it was crypto, it became the fastest and cheapest place to buy Bitcoin when they launched it, right? Now, so I think this idea about trying to become a super app is more about the crossing of the trust chasm, really. It's like, if there is a product need, are you the one? Are you where that transaction is going to take place? And each time you are the one, you keep building trust. That might then overall get bucketed into this quote unquote super app. But the point is that at each one of those layers, there's a transaction and there's a trust equation. And each time they cross, you build this company, which might get called a super app. But so the short answer is, I do believe that it will be true whether it's in the US or in Europe. But the more important thing is what is in it? Mm -hmm. Are you customer centric enough to understand that customers in certain parts of Europe care more about lending than on savings. Some parts of Europe care more about FX than they do on crypto. And will you be the place in which you can conduct that transaction? That's, I think, what drives what becomes or doesn't become a super app. Interesting, interesting. Um, I hope that has answered the, the question in the chat. We have time for one more. I'm afraid it will have to be a quick one. Um, Reggie, I'm going to send it to you. And it's quite a specific question, actually. When measuring burn rates at a, at a pre-profit startup, how granular um, does a VC get in terms of looking at those running costs? Um, I guess this person is asking when you're going through that due diligence phase, you know, how, how specific, what level are you going to before you're sort of green lighting the, um, the burn rate that you're seeing? I guess um, uh, I guess we are going pretty granular. Um, and uh, only before being in VC, I was in private equity, and so I was like used to go very, very deep into the numbers. So it's actually one of the things that we yeah, try to pride ourselves at that momentum is really 
go, go relatively deep and we try to match that with okay what is what is the size of the opportunity and so what what makes sense in terms of burn rate running costs to then tackle the size of the opportunity interesting um oh, yeah, thank I you just, I, I yeah go for it because i think this is quite useful uh some of the best work on this topic has been done by david sachs so if you look up david sachs uh burn to arr ratio you'll get some data on that it, you know the the market's going from you know, it's willing to stomach a two to one ratio on burn versus arr towards less than one less than one is amazing and it's got this got plenty of data on on why that is true using public companies and what series a series b companies look like so i point the audience audience towards uh, some data there fantastic thank you vinoth um uh, that does wrap up the discussion for today, our, our predictions for the year. Um, as I said, I'm not going to hold you to them, so uh, we won't be inviting you. Actually, we might invite you back next year to, to like we did with Vinoth, to see if we can... Uh, chastise us on the wrong predictions. <laughs> it's okay, Vinoth is just going to say he's bullish on infrastructure. That's <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, thank you both. That does wrap up the discussion for today. And it just leaves me to say thank you to firstly, you, our audience and listeners for joining us today. I'm sorry we couldn't get through all those questions, but thank you for, for asking them. Um, and of course, thank you, Vinoth. Thank you, Reggie, um, for being part of our, of our Money Talks discussion this month. Um, I'm going to take you both off screen now. And I'll just say we will be back uh, next month where we'll be discussing how fintechs are adapting to the cost of living crisis. As I said, it'll be with Julia McColl from Chetwood Financial and Chanel Pattinson uh, from Money Means. Uh, that's our next episode of Money Talks. So until then, have a great day and I will see you next time. Bye-bye.